me too. Hi, Mark. Good to see you. Feels like it's been ages, but it hasn't. Well, I don't know. It has been. Now that you're farther away in Virginia, it always feels longer since Zoom is not the not the same as in person. It's true, and I I miss us teaching our class together. I know. Yeah, we have to figure out a way about how to do that again. I know I'm bad teaching it on my own, but what can you do? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm worse than bad. I, I think I, w- I had to teach something else because I thought I would get no students. So, uh, that, that, that's, that's, that's not, and, that's and not that a would positive. be fine, except that I think my <laughs> dean doesn't like it when my enrollment is zero. <laughs> yeah, mine neither. They're probably trying to make me teach something else Ugh, like that I yeah. really don't know. Which something would be, hard. You know, yeah. Speaking yeah. of anyway. hard things, though, um, so one of the things that I has always struck me about our working relationship is, and one of the reasons it has always been productive and fun for me is that we, you know, so much, but we. <laughs> It's true, but we we also focus on different things and pay attention to different things. And so I think, you know, sometimes when you're in the same field as someone and your work overlaps too closely, it's not necessarily that fun to work with them. And I always feel like we're we have a, a slightly different take on an issue. Um, which is a way of leading into today's podcast discussion because this is something that you've been asking me about for a while and I don't I I just don't know shit about it. Like I I haven't been paying attention to it. It hasn't been on my radar screen and I I feel a little bit guilty about that. It's just um you know it okay, just I'm is, getting is nervous. I'm yeah, getting no. nervous. What is this? <laughs> you, you you know what it is. It has to do with the Terra del Fuego uh restructuring that was I think concluded recently. Although um you know, I've been paying so little attention to it that I could be wrong about even that. But I the, can answer the, that. I think good, it, good, good. Go it, ahead. it did successfully get get concluded. Okay. So I've learned one thing already um, <laughs> in this podcast. But I guess the so I know that you've been interested in this, and I was hoping so that we can talk about it and I don't sound too much like a buffoon. I was hoping you could Tell me what it was that was that you thought was so interesting about it, and then we can go from there. So I think this is fascinating and important, and I am intrigued by the fact that it has gotten so little attention in the sovereign debt world, which of course makes me worried that I'm missing something and there's, you know, that I'm missing something here, but, but let me, let me try to lay out why I think the Tierra del Fuego exchange offer small and inconsequential though it might appear is indicative of something big that is in the works. So here goes. Uh, Tierra del Fuego, a small province. Well, I don't actually know whether it's a small province, but it had a small amount of debt. And it recently, because of some central bank pronouncements in Argentina, presumably having to do with the fact that they have so few dollars, uh, under the central bank uh, dictates, they, they had to do an extension of maturities. 
you know, no big deal. It, it wasn't uh, unduly onerous. But what I found fascinating uh, was the way in which they did it. And this is something that we had seen indications of, I, and I think it was in the province of Buenos Aires exchange offer uh, a couple of years ago that we, we did a little podcast, we, we did a little blog post on it, and maybe even a podcast, but this is an aspect of the uh, province of BA restructuring that we did not uh, focus on. That is, Tierra del Fuego does an exchange offer where it says, and I'm just uh, going to give the ref outlines of it. It says the people who consent, say, in like a week, I think it was actually nine days or so, if you consent to our offer in nine days, uh, you get X dollars. If, you, if your consent comes late, uh, like, you know, in 30 days, you get uh, X minus some percentage, so less and, and meaningfully less. I mean, and then if you don't consent to our offer, to our exchange offer, but we cram you down because we got enough others to agree, you get a lot less. Now, this, this uh, ranking of who gets how much as a function of who consents faster strikes me as really pushing the edge of the exit exchange technique. And the fact that it's done in, that somebody tried it in Tierra del Fuego, which is not a very consequential exchange. And they probably thought, as it turned out, they didn't actually get all the consents in their their initial offer. Uh, but they probably thought this is no big deal. We're actually not asking much. People will just agree. My suspicious brain, because I see uh, plots everywhere, uh, I think this is just the shot across the bow. Is that what one says? It's just, it's a precursor to something much more aggressive being tried where you tell people, look, you have a week, you can consent and I'll give you like 60% of, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a 40% NPV haircut. And uh, if you don't consent within a week, you'll get a lot less if you consent with another few weeks. And then you'll get like 2% if you don't consent at all. And if a week is not enough for an institution, say a pension fund or an insurance company, and they have to have meetings, and this puts a lot, lot of pressure on them to agree to a deal that they might not think is a very good deal. And I realize that almost everybody has forgotten the, the cats versus Oak Industries a case from Delaware and its dictates, mm -hmm. but th th these techniques strike me as potentially running uh, directly afoul of it. Uh, but I'm also interested. I, people are clearly thinking about much more aggressive techniques. So that's why, sorry, it went on for too long. No, no, no. I mean, that's really helpful. So the idea is, I, I don't, I, again, I know so little, I assume it's Cleary or one of the big 
firms who would do a sovereign restructuring. And the idea is that this is like um, a precedent, informal precedent establishing kind of thing. And you can establish it easier on the margins than you can at the core. And so you get it established. This is the 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 plot that you're speculating yes, about. Yes. And, and, and I've talked to a couple of people because I, you know, I'm obsessed with exit consents and I, 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 I find it, I, I like teaching about how you think about coercion and good faith. And th so this, this is a great fact scenario and you can exacerbate it and imagine, you know, how it could be, could be pushed further. But I was asking some unnamed people in practice who are more positive about these techniques. And they were saying, yeah, it's already been tried a couple of times and the market's totally fine with it. And, you know, the SEC has blessed uh, consent payments in the corporate context. I'm like, the SEC doesn't decide on things like good faith. This is bullshit. You're just, you're just making stuff up to make it seem like it's market practice that like, makes it acceptable. But it, when I thought about it, it's kind of clever. But it's sort of interesting to me because it so who is the precedent for? Is it especially if we we move this into the context of a true sovereign where, you know, so I mean one one sense is it is just to kind of normalize it within the market so that you get less pushback, you know, if you propose this in another situation. But you know, or are you positing that these kinds of deals, have some effect in shaping how, you know, a court in the Southern District would think about this if somebody brought litigation challenging it there. Because I kind of, I feel like, I feel like those judges would just not be very impressed if you said like, well, in Tierra del Fuego, there were, they pushed back. So, you know, like it, it feels less, I'm not, a, yeah. I'm not in well, practice. No one pays me big bucks to do these things, but it doesn't <laughs> feel super powerful as a precedent. Well, I don't know if you remember this from your days clerking, but I I, I remember this, and the, those judges are no longer alive. So I'm going to tell the, tell the story. But I I remember we used to talk about these judges who would bury stuff in footnotes, like mm -hmm. stuff that really had no legal basis. Then in one opinion, they'd put it in the footnote. And then the next opinion, it would be in the text in dicta. And then by the third or fourth opinion, it was well-established <laughs> precedent in the circuit. <laughs> and that's what I feel like these people, you know, I mean, I think the world of real, the re, I think that the real world practice is all about a precedent, what you think is a norm based on what they've done. These people, they're not reading the old cases. They they just do what they kind of, by the seat of their pants, think think is kind of okay. And, and another aspect of this that I think is, was one of the justifications I heard was that, look, uh, the move towards collective action clauses shows that the official sector and the entire community uh, no longer wants to allow for holdout creditors. And in this deal, we got a majority of creditors who were on board. Uh, and usually, I, th I think, for example, in the promise of Buenos Aires, but I might just be making it up, there was one really big creditor who was totally on board for the dodgy shit that they were trying. And 
So the justification is, well, this is just the, the big creditor said yes. So now we're allowed to screw, screw over everybody guys. else. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm yeah, like, yeah. no, 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 no. I, I, I don't think that was ever the the plan. Uh, but some people do seem to think that No, there that's is that okay. weird bootstrapping logic. It's like, well, we put these clauses in that say 75% and we got 52%. And so like the principle <laughs> is the same, right? Yes, yes, yes. And I mean, if you're somebody doing this deal and it's working, why not try it? I mean, your client's going to be thrilled. You're going to look like a hero because... You 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 know you push through something you shouldn't get the 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 hedge funds are going to be really pissed off so you look like even more of a hero, uh, uh, but I I think I think ignoring what's happened what happened in the Tierra del Fuego uh, deal and now I sh I should my understanding is that their attempt did not actually succeed that they didn't mm -hmm. this is such a sleepy deal that nobody even like bothered to answer so they didn't get 75% within their first 9 days to quash everybody else and so they ended up having to give everybody who consented the same deal okay so i think they still screwed the people who didn't didn't consent didn't participate. yeah but if i i want to run by you the question of whether this would be a violation of good faith uh, if you did it in a very aggressive way. Because remember, there was that British case where a Senegon, um, where they had, there was a very aggressive use of exit consents, where basically, um, if you didn't consent, you got like zero or 0.1% mm -hmm. or something like that. I mean, this is all part of that same. Uh, it's it's on that continuum, and and so now, just so I'm clear, now you're focused less on the payment for speed and the lesser payment for a, well, a less quickly delivered consent. And I think one has to combine them. This is all part of the same uh, deal. Like you are trying to coerce at both ends. Well, can I, can I, can we then just focus on the speed part of it? Cause I'm, I'm struggling to decide whether that has any real aspects of coercion to it. And, and, and that, so I'm imagining a deal where they just said, Hey, we're proposing restructuring terms to you. Here's what they are. You know, the exchange closes in a week and you know, that's it. Like, no, we're not going to differentiate between people based on how quickly they uh, decide to participate on whether they decide to participate. Just, you got a week. I would not think that it would be especially coercive or problematic to do that. And so I'm trying to figure out why it's somehow worse to say, we'll give you a little more if you can tell us yes within a week and a little less if you can't tell us yes within a week. I, I think you're exactly right. So if you structure the exchange to say, I just give you a week, and if I get 75% of you to consent, the exchange goes goes through and everybody gets the same thing. That's, that, then you will just see if 75% of the holders actually thought it was a good deal. And if so, that that's the way the deal should be done. If on the other hand, I say, I give you a week and all those of you who consent within a week, if I get 75%, you will get 60 cents on the dollar. And 
if, if you haven't consented, you get three cents on the dollar. Uh, and then it puts pressure on you to, to have to agree to a deal without having enough time, arguably. I mean, I'm just, just hypothetically, uh, but you are, you're not able to, if you're a big, fat, slow institution, you can't coordinate with your friends to, to block the thing. And so it's a way of taking, taking out of the equation the large investors who have the resources to really figure out all the sneaky bullshit that you've included in your yes. deal, but need Bingo. time to do it. Yeah, I, I see that when you combine these two, these two aspects. The so in in you would have to be a pretty draconian penalty for not acting quickly, right? And then that compared with the the time crunch could be could be problematic, I guess. But I mean, aren't we allowed even? So I never know how much. So the a Senegon or whatever the hell that case is, like I. It, I thought there were subsequent cases in English courts, and I, I, I at confess, least one other case. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the status of that law in general, and I'm kind of blending it with my weak understanding of like the Trust Indenture Act cases in the U.S. Oh, and yes, so forth. Yes, yes, but aren't yes. we like? This is why you're going back to cases like cats, right? Because unless we start thinking about good faith in general, aren't we basically? given huge amounts of discretion in basically coercing hold like isn't that kind of the lesson you take away from at least the trust indenture act cases and uh, that you can do a lot of skeevy shit but courts are going to read the contract really literally and if it doesn't expressly forbid what you've done you're probably fine okay i think that's exactly right plus i think a court might well say, look, exit consents have been around for now, time immemorial. I don't know, Cats was like in the 80s. Mm -hmm. If you once you've had 45 years and this is very well established market practice and consents payments are used periodically, and courts are like, if you didn't put in place a contractual protection against it, it's on you. You had 45 mm -hmm. years to figure it out. It's not every law student teaches, takes corporate finance, or at least my contracts class, because I'm obsessed with this stuff, uh, learns about this. And so it's it's on you. But can, can we talk? You'll probably laugh out loud, but can I bring up at least one explicit contractual sure. uh, term that I, I is much beloved to me and the idea that we could talk about it. Oh, no, it's not going to be pari passu, is it? It is, but it's <laughs> not the standard pari passu. So in every pari passu clause, as I know you well know, but I, I just want to, to, to say it out loud, there are two parts. Well, in almost every one that I have seen, uh, the first part, which we all ignore, has to do with treatment of the bondholders within the bond series. Mm -hmm. And the second part, which is the part that has become infamous, has to do with the treatment across bond series. And the first part, and I'll, I'll let me just read a version uh, that I just pulled up from a random bond. It says that, so the equal treatment provision in this bond, it was called an equal treatment provision. The securities rank and will rank equally 
among themselves with no preference one over the other. Now, I ask my students who don't know shit about sovereign debt or about bankruptcy what this meant in the context of an offer like Tuera del Fuego, where you're saying if you consent quickly, you get X dollars, you consent slowly, X minus, and you don't consent at all, you really get screwed. And just so I'm clear on the tech, this is an exchange offer. So the non-consenters are holding a different bond from the consenters after all of this. They might yeah. get crammed down on deal terms, but they're holding a yeah. different series. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or or maybe they do it all through like the past due interest. Like, mm. you know, I, I think that's what they, they do. Like, it's like what share of the amount of the past due interest you get. But there's yeah. still the non-tendering bondholders are still they're holding a different series of bonds after the exchange than the tendering ones right no because they all get they all get um it's a payment so no actually no everybody gets the same bond but okay. you're making a payment that is different to the different okay bond. okay yeah, yeah yeah thank you yeah th thank you for clarifying that but um you know the one a couple of students are like well uh the meaning of the word rank is one person doing better than the other and so here clearly one set of bondholders is doing better than the other and so they there's rank one rank two rank three this seems pretty obviously a violation of rank and you know i think that i'd always thought about this rank stuff as a bankruptcy concept concept but if it's a it's an entity that can't go bankrupt you read the word rank as just an ordinary word, which and it has a meaning. And if the well, bonds will rank, will rank and will rank equally among themselves with no preference one over the other. Yeah, so that's, I mean, it's even more than, I mean, this you're not reading the Tierra del Fuego language, so I don't no, know if no, no, no preference part is yeah, there I don't, also. I don't but, remember. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I should have looked at that specifically. Um, but and I don't know. But I'm just because I was thinking, you know, who else is who who's in line for a major restructuring? None other than our friends at the Republic of Argentina. Yeah. And they they like dodgy shit like this. So, you know, I, I'm kind of counting on them to try try something. Uh, I mean this is a sort of a You're variant. not laughing out loud. So I No, I'm, I'm not I'm not laughing out loud, but like this is a variant of the the question before that Argentina had to deal with, right? I don't, I, I, the word rank, and often it says rank in right of payment, right? It doesn't say yes. rank in amount of payment or quantity of payment or payment. It says rank in right of payment. And so the trick is to f assign some meaning to that. And without even, I can hear, you know, Lee Bookheit, you know, invoking the lock law and things like that, that Argentina, <laughs> like without, especially without doing something kind of stupid like that and passing some kind of law that purports to dictate an investor's ability to be paid. It seems like textually it's, there's a kind of clear path to saying this is not changing the ranking of these people because you're making 
a payment, it's changing what they're entitled to be paid. And then you're making that payment, um, you know, on schedule as required for each of them, a hundred percent of what they're due. Like you can, you can kind of see the textual argument is pretty easy. So the question is, does a court hate this enough that it wants to go down that whole peri passu and injunction route to do it. And I sort of feel like, not that that door has been closed, I don't think it has, but it has been, you know, narrowed substantially, know, right? But this is a whole different part of the pari passu clause. Wouldn't that be so cool? But don't they have kind of the same meaning? Like, they're just, <laughs> it's about the scope of the protection, right? One is within the series and one is across series. But I don't read the clause. Maybe I'm wrong about this. I've never given it that much well, thought. But nobody has any. You like... Nobody has any clue as to what it means. But That's it wouldn't why make it... sense to give people different right, different pari passu rights within a series than they have across series. And I don't think there's anything in the text to support that. So it's kind of the same, right? Yeah. Although, but the other one is about paying one series before the other right that that was the thing that we were talking about and here it's paying one more than the other right but paying each of them all that they're entitled to under the terms well, of the deal i mean yes this is there's a bootstrapping uh, aspect of this right like yeah 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 yeah, yeah it's it's it, yeah um so maybe we're you know we'll have to see what the I mean, maybe I'll be totally wrong, and nobody will ever try this again. I think. I think that's that. That's. I don't. I, I don't I'm, know. I, I mean, it's. I think they yeah. are going to try it. Uh, but the thing that strikes me is just how little actual law there is <laughs> defining what counts as permissible and what counts as coercive in the in this context. I mean, there's not even. Again, I, I've already said I'm not an expert in it, but. I may be an expert enough to know that there's not even a ton of law in the corporate bond workout context. And there's there's like nothing in the sovereign context except the little bit that Argentina generated, which was kind of feels so, felt like a one-off at times, even though I don't think it really was a one-off. I think it's, it's there on the shelf. It can be dusted off. Um, if yeah, and it's, it certainly right. didn't, didn't provide clarity no. Uh, so, so that means this is, you know, uh, wide open for uh, creative uh, litigation. But, um, but I, I, I think we have said uh, what we can say uh, about this. I, I, I like it. I, I like our discussion because it shows how little clarity there is. But I'm, I'm also. I also feel like our conversation has shown me how, how many more mutations of this can can be created that could put pressure. So, for example, you you know you could try to say, "I'm just gonna I'm gonna pay the first eighty percent of you who consent mm -hmm. uh, a certain amount and." Everybody else is going to get less, uh, or I—I I mean, I, I could I could structure it that way, mm -hmm. and then then 
then I, I'm putting a few more needles under your uh, nails uh, in, in there. And every time, every time you do one of these deals and people start getting comfortable with it, especially if the big, the big creditor institutions are on board with your doing this uh, and they're helping you mm -hmm. uh, do this, that, that then um, the, the game sort of changes from, to solving the holdout problem, to to really one of creditors kind of ganging up on each other, and or jockeying for position in term in terms of who gets to set the restructuring terms, and yes, you know, yes. it, my sense is that the holders that amass a pretty large block and that decide they like the deal, they're perfectly happy to be have the issuer be pretty cutthroat and wrangling the others into into complying right yeah i think i think that's really what the game has changed from just a few holdouts uh, to really different creditor groups with different interests and the big creditor groups have no hesitation in cutting the throat of the little guys <laughs> as it as it has always been and ever shall be well thank you mark this was great fun